Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, mostly breaking down the first three episodes of the Amazon Prime show, The Boys, based on the comic book. This series has been hugely successful, definitely Prime's biggest success to date. They do have that Lord of the Rings show coming. They've spent a lot of money on that one. But for now, this is definitely this is definitely their signature show. And I'll be spending most of this episode breaking those down. Meanwhile, in the feed, do keep your ears, eyes peeled for those notifications. We did just finish wrapping up the mid-season finale of Better Call Saul. And that will be coming back in a little more than a month now. And the Barry recaps will be moving to earlier in the week, closer to the air date of those episodes. There's two episodes left. It's been a great season so far. Hope you are catching up on that show if you haven't already. And one more bonus episode this week. Over the weekend, once again, check for updates. My sister and I will be recapping the finale of The Shining Girls on Apple+, Plus, a show that no one is watching. <laughs> we know no one is watching that show, but I will make a spoiler-free pitch at the beginning of that show to try to get you motivated to watch it. And if you are watching, then we will be giving our final decision on that show, which I, I think has been very interesting up until now. I've heard people think it's very slow at the start, but stay tuned. I'll make my elevator pitch for that show, and then maybe you will decide to catch up and then listen to the rest of the recap. By the way, I'm solo here again, Victor, your host. I will be solo again today in my recapping, but Nick will definitely be coming back. Meetings and career and life got in the way. <laughs> it gets in the way, of course. And he's been catching up on Stranger Things, something that I did give a review for the first few episodes, which I had caught up on last week. I have finished it now, and I'll be giving my final opinion on that. He's catching up on that, and he also watches The Boys, and he's been watching Obi-Wan. And spoiler for my opinion of the new Obi-Wan episode, which I will be covering here very briefly. Based on the few text messages we've sent back and forth, I think he has a lot of the same issues I have, and that's what I'll get into right now. I don't want to just bash show if I can avoid it. I was originally planning to go week to week on this episode, this uh, new series. I was very excited for revisiting the younger Obi-Wan storyline, and I was not impressed with those first two episodes. And I do think this episode three was a minor improvement, but that's not saying that much. And if you haven't caught up, I will be spoiling some ma minor details. I'm not going to spoil the entire episode, but best that you do watch that show before you hear some of these comments if you haven't already. So you may want to skip ahead about three or four minutes. But in this latest episode, I do feel that they have corrected slightly some of the issues with the Leia character being a little too precocious and a little annoying, kind of having barely any sur survival instincts <laughs> for some reason. And it almost feels like maybe they've re-edited or re shot some of these scenes along the way because she really seems to sometimes be still playing that character and other times being another more sedate version of that character, which is a little less annoying to me, but really not in character with what we've seen from the first two episodes. Another thing that I found abrasive last week was the third sister character, which I kind of speculated at that time. This was all to set up that she really had some ul ulterior motive. She's really not this bad person. She's going to make some kind of pivot. And there is a moment in this episode in the side where she seems to show a different side of her personality. So I do think that that is coming. My guess is that she is the baddest of the bad, but simply so that she can get closer to Vader because she really wants to get revenge against Vader. And she probably does 
hold a grudge or have basically have no love lost for Obi-Wan because she feels like the Jedi's failed them. She was one of those Padawans that was massacred at the beginning of that first episode that we saw also that massacre in the original prequel series from more than a decade now, almost 20 years ago now at this point. So I do think that is her motivation. And I do think we're going to see a different side of her personality. And in this episode, the character is a little less grating. So maybe they've decided to either soften her or the character itself is written to soften as it goes through the series. But I'm still not that enthusiastic with the direction of the show. Maybe the worst thing I think they do here is they've shown that not only is Obi-Wan very similar to what irritated many people about Luke in the prequels, in being a Jedi that's gone to seed and is reluctant to be a hero again, which doesn't really make sense because he has really kind of sacrificed his entire life to keep an eye on Luke. And yet that doesn't mean he's keeping his Jedi skills up. He seems to be just inept. As a matter of fact, he wouldn't survive this current episode without a lot of luck and a lot of assistance and the idea that this Jedi couldn't handle himself. And he makes a big point of basically saying that he doesn't believe in the calling anymore. His skills are, are rusty. But like I said, there's no excuse. If he's committed to keeping an eye on Luke, then how is he going to do that <laughs> if his skills are so, so bad? And we see him barely being able to rescue Leia last week. But this week, really, and once again, I'm spoiling this. So if you haven't seen it, definitely do. We finally have, I mean, what everyone has got to be really, really excited for, the return of Darth Vader to the Star Wars universe in a lightsaber battle with Obi-Wan Kenobi. And it is just not a thrilling sequence for me. I mean, it, 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 the, the lead up to it is there's this pulse pounding anticipation for the moment to happen. And then it just goes over so clumsily and seeing Obi-Wan just thrown around and set on fire, <laughs> like once again, just unable to rescue himself. I just don't like this Obi-Wan character. And and maybe this is all part of his arc. He's going to reclaim the mantle of being a Jedi. He's going to come into his full powers again at the end of this series. But is that what we're going to get? We're going to get one good episode at the end of this very short six-episode run. I mean, in, in a very bad way, that would be replicating <laughs> what we got with those prequels. Also amazing to me that now we have multiple series in the Star Wars universe where our hero is just babysitting in the end. This is all they can come up with. <laughs> Once again, I I don't understand. There is so many opportunities. Um, you know, I just saw the Top Gun movie, which has some reference points to the Star Wars, the original Star Wars series. And not only do they kind of wink at the simplicity of that original Star Wars finale, but there's a, a movie, you know, based on not a great original film, by the way, that creates a metaphor for getting older, for accepting your place in life, like things we all have to deal with as we get older. And basically, it's a heist movie. It's a heist movie. It's something that where the mission is so basic, so clear, lined up, and they get told to you over and over again, just like it's Ocean's Eleven or something, that we need to do A, and then B, and then C, and then if we can do this, then we can do that, and then we can do the next thing. And we all know, sitting in the theater, <laughs> what we're watching at all moments, and that's what makes it exciting. And... That's something they're making with Top Gun, which is based on one film from decades ago and the career trajectory of Tom Cruise, which adds a whole other layer to the film. But they make something really riveting by just saying, hey, what if we made this like a heist movie in planes, <laughs> right? 
And, you know, it just amazes me. You have this gigantic Star Wars sandbox and you can't come up with any storyline other than, okay, we got to babysit one of the chosen messiahs and then just drag in some characters from the previous series. Like, <laughs> I don't get it. It just seems like a real lack of creativity. So, yeah, I mean, this feels like a dud. Uh, it, just given the fact that you have Darth Vader back and what an incredible opportunity and this is all you do with it? This is all you can come up with? It's just, I don't understand. So yeah, I'm sorry. I'm very negative on the show. If you are still enthusiastic about it, let me know if you can make heads or tails of this. Maybe there's, you know, we see a little bit of Obi-Wan's internal struggle that, you know, he feels bad about what happened to Anakin. So the shock of it to see him as Darth Vader, of course, probably is truly shocking. But when you have him paired up with a child... He can't really have those conversations that give us that kind of interiority that we may need to make this thing have some weight. And the battle itself was just, who wants to see Obi-Wan after all this time just get thrown into, <laughs> into a flame, a ball, you know, dragged through a fire? I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know. And I mean, that's not even the worst of it, right? He barely survives being arrested by the stormtroopers. You know, he just lucked out that one of the spies is among them. Yeah. So I don't know. <laughs> and this is it. I mean, when you think about how small this story was in this particular episode, and we have only three episodes to go, I mean, I don't have much faith in where this is going. And I really do worry in some ways that we're going to get like one really cool episode at the end. And that might've been all the ideas they had. They're like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this thing happened? And then they reverse engineered a very short series around that one cool thing. And that might be it. We might just be, this is all just lead up to one episode. And Man, if that's all they can do with this incredibly valuable IP, I don't know. I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> all right. So sorry about all the negativity. Negativity. Yeah, I'll be talking to Nick about this next week, see where he is. I think he's more forgiving of all of these things than I am. And hopefully we get a better episode next week. I mean, that's all I can hope for. I'm going to stick it out, obviously. We only have a few episodes to go. Relatively small commitment of time. But wow, what a disappointing use of this IP, in my opinion. All right. So on that downer of a note, uh, let's go on to a downer of a show, a really nihilistic show, which is The Boys on Amazon Prime. First of all, I want to call out that this is probably a uh, pairing mistake that I made. I honestly was thinking to cover the Obi-Wan Kenobi show and The Boys in a single episode going forward. And I might end up splitting these up depending on the way the content breaks out for the simple fact that I was kind of assuming that Obi-Wan Kenobi was going to be more of a show geared towards maybe older men, the story of a hero gone to seed. I'm going to make the Top Gun analogy yet again, the Maverick movie, which came out recently, a film really about aging out of a certain role and accepting a different role. But really, it seems like it might be gearing up to be a show you were supposed to watch with your kids, maybe, given the Leia character. So maybe this is not a good pairing after all, because this show is extremely cynical. It basically rejects traditional heroics, the boys that is. So maybe not the best pairing. <laughs> but with that out of the way, let's get into a breakdown a little bit. The history of the show, the history of the comic book and the creators behind it, uh, catching up on season two and then breaking down these first three episodes. So the boys was created by Garth Ennis, an Irish writer who grew up during the Troubles in Ireland. And this really ingrained in him at a very early age, a mistrust of the government as the Irish were oppressed by the Protestant British and of religion in general. He found religion to be hypocritical. And he grew up reading mostly war comics, 
When he eventually, when he was older, started reading superhero comics, he found them to be utterly ridiculous. And this really inspires the philosophy of the comic and the show, The Boys. What if there was a real-life Superman? He'd have too much power. It would probably drive him insane to be someone with superpowers amongst mere mortals. And it would just make him an entitled monster. This is going back to a total digression here of Zack Snyder's vision of Superman in those Justice League movies, making him exactly that. A being with all this power would eventually become a corrupt and corrupting force, which may logically be true, but we have the boys to explore that. We have other deconstructions of superheroes. And my critique is that you can't have Superman itself be that when everything else is supposedly a juxtaposition against that very thing. If it, if the Superman itself, the ideal, doesn't exist, then there can't be any kind of sarcastic commentary on it, which is to say that Zack Snyder, in my opinion, created that character in the wrong way. And these are the bigger themes that Ennis is exploring in his work. This idea that having too much power will inevitably turn you into a fascist monster that does what it wants to do as a political force or as an individual and then rationalize away all the bad that you're doing. And that the powers that be, the industries, for example, comic book movies, comic books themselves, would want to maintain the image, maintain the image of the impervious superhero with no moral failings, because it is what the public wants to see. It's what they want to project of this. It's the idealized version of a corporation. For example, we've seen whether it would be Enron or the collapse of GE, just the name two. Companies that presented themselves as one thing and then once we looked under the covers, we discovered that that was simply an illusion that was being sold to the public. And under the covers, there was the emperor had no clothes on or was potentially nefarious in their operations. And we've seen this with different political leaders as well. And just one analogy you can think of in this very moment, what's happening in the Ukraine. Think about Putin and his popularity among Russians. There are, when you look at legitimate polls done of Russian citizens, they believe the party line that's being fed to them by Putin. Now, maybe deep down inside, they know it's not true, but who wants to accept that reality when someone is spoon feeding to you a version of the truth that you want to hear anyway? And that is how you placate the masses, basically. And that is the metaphor that's playing out here in the show. And it's what Ennis more broadly is trying to explore in his most of his comics. And I'll get into my relationship with the show, the issues I might have with it, how successful I think it is as an adaptation, or how sustainable it is overall. I'll get to all that at the end of this, but let's just stick to the meat and potatoes. Where were we at the end of season two? So as a reminder, if you haven't watched it recently, in general terms, somebody is basically head popping, literally blowing up the heads of all these senators that are trying to investigate the supers and some of these instances that we've heard or rumored instances of their corrupt behavior. The CIA forms a group to investigate who this superhero terrorist might be who's attacking these senators. But it turns out the person running that group is the head popper herself. Dun, 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 indeed. What a twisted web we weave. Homelander, meanwhile, is momentarily placated by the fact that they can leak a video. We saw this in, I think, season one, maybe earlier in season two, where he lets an entire plane full of people die. But a phone has been recovered that contains the video of what happened on board, recovered, I think, by the deep, actually. Of course, very importantly, Butcher had met, had found his wife, who is being held in isolation with Ryan, her son, but the product of the rape, 
at the hands of Homelander. And Homelander's trying to build a relationship with this son. He had a terrible upbringing and he's trying theoretically to improve himself to be a real father figure here. But of course, he is a terrible father figure and tries to force Ryan to express his powers. Meanwhile, we see a new member of the Seven arrive, Stormfront. And she is as brutal as Homelander. And they have some bonding over some extremely superhero-ish <laughs> sex. And over the course of the season, we find out that she's been around for a very long time. She was actually a Nazi, a legitimate Nazi back in the Weimar era of Germany. There's an interesting commentary made here that he really buys into her philosophy, this philosophy that he needs to be the full version of himself. He's better than everybody else. And he's kind of saying, that's right. Why am I listening to these other people? I am the Superman. But once her Nazi bona fides are exposed, he kind of sours on it. So this, once again, is a little bit of a commentary on what we see nowadays, actually, honestly, where you see a lot of people are aligning themselves with traditionally fascist talking points or opinions or beliefs. But when you use the word Nazi, they're still a little skittish about it. And they literally, you know, call this out specifically. This all culminates at the end of the season where we have Becca, Butcher's wife, and the son, Ryan, and Homelander and Stormfront have a final confrontation in the woods. And just as Stormfront is about to kill Becca, Ryan detonates his emotions, take, get the better of him. And he almost completely obliterates Stormfront, although she does survive and accidentally kills his mother, which of course is extremely scarring. Butcher leaves with Ryan and Homelander allows him to leave because his son openly rejects him. And without Becca there, someone needs to be the parent. So he makes the right question mark choice. And I say that because he, it's the correct thing for him to do. I'm not sure if his motivation is good. So that's season two in a nutshell, all the main talking points. So it's season three, we open with a major fake out where we see the earth decimated. This reminded me of the most recent Justice League bonus scene, by the way. And of course, not ironically, I think intentionally, they are calling directly to the Snyder cut of the Justice League movie, because not only do we have that same kind of look and feel here in this opening moment, it turns out that we are watching the movie, the fictionalization of the events we saw last season. And of course, what happened as a very intimate sequence in the forest of course gets turned into a giant action sequence where whole cities are destroyed, looking very much like an Avengers film, for example. And Seth Rogen, one of the producers of this show, pulls his friend card with Charlize Theron to get her to play Stormfront. What a surprising giant cameo here. We then see a pretty funny and <laughs> pretty disgusting <laughs> uh, sequence here where we see Billy and the boys are working along with this legitimate, supposedly, anti-soups CIA organization where Huey is now working and has a legitimately good working relationship with Victoria, his boss, slash Nadia, slash the head popper. So this is all about to go very badly for him. But at the moment, things are going pretty smoothly. There's a 60% reduction in people being killed by soups. And their current target is someone called the termite. So it's someone who can change shape. It's like a, an analog to Ant-Man. And we see him at a party, I believe it's at this club we've seen before, where the soups get to really cut loose. Supposedly, everything that happens there is supposed to stay in there. But they've gotten inside, and they see him, <laughs> this guy, uh, you know, changing sizes. He's, <laughs> he's simulating sex with, uh, with a doll inside of a dollhouse. But the culmination of the scene is so ridiculous. <laughs> and it's amazing what they can get away with on this show, with the gore and the sexuality. Something that you literally could not get away with on in a movie. But he goes backstage after this performance 
and he goes, him and his boyfriend, to do a line of Coke, I believe. And then he shrinks down super small because his boyfriend wants him to, <laughs> by the way, if kids are listening to this right now, turn this off. <laughs> but he uh, shrinks down super small and climbs into the guy's urethra <laughs> in graphic detail, by the way. And he's basically stimulating his urethra from the inside. But in the middle of doing this, he's been sneezing when he does his lines and he sneezes and blows this guy up from the inside. It's disgusting, <laughs> really extremely disgusting. And this is the humor in the show, by the way. So I want to call it out specifically because I feel like more and more, it's always been this way, but it was kind of like the shock of these gross out sequences. It's become like, these are the punchlines <laughs> to every single one of these. And unfortunately, uh, you know, maybe I'm previewing my general opinion of the show uh, in the direction of it. Since the people who get killed in these set pieces are all the human bystanders, it makes it a little bit hard to have any kind of grounding at all in this show because anybody who's a normal person <laughs> has got to eventually be the fodder for the rest of the show. And here's an example of it, although it is disgusting, really disgusting and uh, hilarious as well, <laughs> if this is your kind of humor. And honestly, if this kind of humor turns you off, <laughs> you would not be watching this show anymore. He gets caught by the boys and uh, tries to shrink down and kill them also in the same way by climbing inside of them to blow them up. But he gets caught by Butcher. And with that preamble out of the way, I'm really going to work towards the end of the show and work backwards. Because with three whole episodes, I really can't go and break down every single plot point beat for beat. That will probably be more the case when we pick this up next week. But a little too much ground to cover. So I'll try to work from the back and fill in the blanks. So in the second episode, we see a few really key things happen. It's Homelander's annual birthday party. It's like a big television event. We're already starting to see that Stormfront has built up a following with her openly fascist beliefs. But among the general public, Homelander, his brand is tarnished, basically. But on the day of his birthday, after the suicide, supposed suicide of Stormfront, who had been horribly mutilated by the events at the finale of last season, and is still recovering, but not recovering well, they have a horrible sex scene, by the way, where she masturbates him. And this is basically where they're at. And she, as they say in the show, million dollar babies herself by chewing off her own tongue and choking on it and killing herself. But we never see the body. We see the body only in a bag. So I do wonder if she has truly died. Although it would make sense. She seems to be utterly miserable in her current state. And this seems to be the thing that finally spirals Homelander out of control. He goes on a rant on his birthday party where he basically says a lot, honestly, terribly, of the kind of populist propaganda that we've been hearing, not only in the United States, but also among leaders across the world. I don't make mistakes. I'm not just like the rest of you. I'm stronger. I'm smarter. I'm better. I am better. I'm not some weak-kneed fucking crybaby that goes around fucking apologizing all the time. And why the fuck would you want me to, to be? Go to fucking commercial, Roger. Go to fucking commercial. Don't you dare stop rolling, Roger. All my life, people have tried to control me. My whole life. Rich people, powerful people, tried to muzzle me, cancel me, keep me impotent and, and obedient like I'm a fucking puppet. You know what? It worked. Because I allowed it to work. And guess what? If they can control me, then you can... Bet your ass they can control you. They already do. You just don't realize it. I'm done. I am done apologizing. I am done being persecuted for my strength. You people should be thanking Christ that I am who and what I am because you need me. You need me to save you. You do. 
I am the only one who possibly can. You're not the real heroes. I'm the real hero. And rather than this hurting his brand, it actually strengthens his brand. I want to call out, we've seen that Mother's Milk, in the meantime, has tried to repair things with his family. And he goes and visits his ex-wife, who has a very, very different nebbish type of new husband or boyfriend. Not sure if they're married or not. But we do see him eating up this rant that Homelander goes on. And I do worry, do worry about what that means for him in the future. I do not think that's going to be an isolated event there. Homelander finds out that he's been trending well. He's very excited to get the news. Also finds out that he's doing well in the Rust Belt. His numbers are way up among men, not necessarily among women, not in the cities, not among minorities. But when you put him and Starlight together, hint, hint, their popularity combined is 98%, which is a record, a record for the polling on the seven. Meanwhile, earlier we had found out that there is now a V24, which basically is V that gives you superpowers for 24 hours. And there is a important scene earlier on, I believe in season episode two, where Giancarlo Esposito, that's right, Gus Fring, or in this show, Stan Edgar, interesting that he's the, ba- the, the big bad on two different hugely popular shows simultaneously. But he's trying to pitch this incredibly expensive solution, this daily dosage of V, to the government because wouldn't it be nice to be able to have soldiers that could fight against the supers without having permanent superpowers? So not to create more of them, but to control them. It's important in this conversation, by the way, that he's saying that I want to get out of the superhero business. I'm tired of babysitting these superheroes. I think you can read this as saying that he wants to get out of the superhero business and focus exclusively on pharmaceuticals and military contracts. I read this differently. I read this as him saying that he wants to get out of the superhero business. He actually wants, I think this might be all part of his grand scheme, what we see playing out here. He wants the superheroes to become supervillains, to be vilified, to be considered a threat by the government and by individuals in the street, because then you have a much, much bigger consumer base. The analogy, of course, would be if you're a gun manufacturer, do you sell weapons to the government only, to the military only, or do you sell it to the public? Because you can sell way more guns to the public than you can to just one buyer, the government. And I think that is the goal, making V24 a product for the masses. It turned out that Maeve had turned one of these samples out to Butcher. So Butcher has that on his back pocket. He's been warned that all the kinks haven't been worked out of this thing. So we discover over the course of these episodes that Soldier Boy, who is supposed to be another invulnerable superhero, was supposedly killed by some kind of super weapon. And most of the plot points here, everybody's kind of on separate missions, trying to track down what this super weapon might be, because if they can get their hands on it, maybe, just maybe, they can kill Homelander. Just before I forget, I do want to call out that Carl Urban, especially in season one, the accent he uses for Butcher was so artificial. It almost made me feel like the character himself was putting it on and it wasn't a real accent. And that's bothered me actually even in season two. But I don't know if I've just acclimated to it or he's figured out the right balance to it. But I really do like him using the accent here now. I've always liked his performance. It was the accent that was throwing me off, but either I have adapted to it or he has gotten it right. The right balance of cartoonish accent and believable accent. So inevitably, Butcher has used the V, the 24-hour V, to go after Gunpowder, who was Soldier Boy's sidekick back in the day. And it turns out Gunpowder doesn't really have tons to tell him. Gunpowder nearly kills him multiple times. 
because he's such an incredible trick shot, basically. He can shoot a bullet off of three different posts and, and Butcher barely escapes with his life. So he does take the V-24 and basically under the threat of death, Gunpowder does spin the, spill the beans that he doesn't really know what happened, but he does know that it happened on a mission that he was on and that Mallory was the person who ran that mission. Dun, dun, dun. Once again. Now, the most interesting part of this whole entire sequence, and I think this is maybe the deepest the show has explored this, and I I look forward to more of it, is that Butcher has had this one-dimensional hatred for Homelander, obviously, for many, many obvious reasons, but has never kind of empathized with the life he's had to live. And Butcher now gets just a little taste of this power, just a tiny little taste of it. And he goes off the rails. He, you know, completely obliterates gunpowder in a very grisly sequence, slices his head off just the top of his head off, and then really struggles to keep it under control. So just with this uh, tiny little bit of power, you see how he he should have some empathy now for what Homelander went through and what Ryan is going through right now. This little boy who's basically already had to deal with understanding how to control his own powers. Over the course of this episode, we also see that the boys are all back together now. Mother's milk, now that Soldier Boy is part of this storyline entire family actually was killed by soldier boy he now is drawn back into the story of course huey's back because he's found out that the organization he's been working for completely manipulated everybody and manipulated him thinking that he's doing you know fighting this thing the right way when of course his boss is the supposed terrorist they're looking for meanwhile frenchie gets lured out by an ex of his and this all turns out to be fortuitous it's a very dex deuses machina (laughs) here with the way this all plays out. We'll get around to it because it comes back at the end of the episode. Starlight, meanwhile, has been made co-captain of the Seven. Homelander's not very happy about this. And and she is thinking at first that this is a real way to have real change from inside. Maybe she can change from within the system. Huey actually wants her to run, but she decides, no, I'm going to stick it out and see if I can do some good here. But of course, Homelander starts playing lots of mind games with her. They're having a reality show to cast new members of the Seven. And he not only tries to pressure her into bringing her ex-boyfriend back, which creates a little bit of tension with Huey, but much worse is bringing the Deep back. Of course, he was disgraced when he raped her previously, and now she has to smile and bring him back on board as a team member. A-Train is still in the Seven, even though he doesn't can't use his powers without potentially risking his life, and he's continuously body-shamed by Homelander, <laughs> calling him fat. Now, the big set piece here in Episode 3, or in these first three episodes, honestly is this giant flashback sequence to this failed military operation led by Mallory in Nicaragua. And the boys have shown up at Mallory and Ryan's hideout. She's constantly on the move to keep Homelander from finding them. And what's referenced here, by the way, so here's another aside just to add some context. It's interesting that this show obviously is in an alternate reality, a version of the world where superheroes exist, but there are historic reference points. And this drugs for guns plotline that happened during the under the Reagan administration, Oliver North spearheading most of the operations, is actually a legitimate thing. However, it's a little oversimplified here in the fact that they basically state that drugs were purchased and then sold into minority neighborhoods and that this was a CIA operation. This is true and not true. And I only call it out because I feel that oftentimes when you're looking for the corruption of systems, you're looking for villains. We want there to be a big boogeyman who made all those bad decisions, when in reality, it's tiny little fractures, tiny little cracks that happen throughout a system. And then when the flood comes, of course, the water finds those cracks. And unfortunately, 
the people that drown are the ones at the bottom. If you want to see that metaphor illustrated, watch the movie Parasite and to see what happens when the floodwaters come. But I'll include uh, some show notes here to some articles, some of the declassification of those events back in the 80s. But basically what happened was that there was indeed these Latin American Contras that were being funded. They needed funding to go behind the Senate's back. The Reagan administration ended up purchasing the drugs, selling them to Americans, and then using the money that they raised to buy guns to arm these militias. Manuel Noriega, for example, rose to power, funded primarily by these operations. And most of those drugs ended up in minority neighborhoods. And on the one hand, you could say that's a giant conspiracy. On the other hand, you could also say that it's just going to simply impact the most unfortunate always are the ones that are going to face the blame or face the worst consequences of whatever ends up happening when there is corruption in the system. And that's what happened here. So it's a big topic (laughs) to be brought up in such a cavalier way here in the show. But I do want to call it out just for the fact that there is a real world corollary to this particular story. In the flashback itself, this actress, Sarah Swire, great casting to be a young version of Mallory. Also good casting for the young Edgar. We see Black's uh, noir before he was lost his voice and was permanently masked. I believe it's the same actor who plays him all the time, just the first time we get to see his face. And he's complaining that he doesn't get to show his face enough. Well, <laughs> he should have kept the mask on. That's what I got to say. And this turns out to be a military operation where they're trying to find out if the soups are a good fit for military activation. And it turns out they're a bunch of incompetence. They end up killing their own people. They draw attention to themselves by showing off their powers. And in the end, some kind of super weapon is used to kill Soldier Boy and abscond with his body. This makes me think that Soldier Boy is not dead, by the way. So here's my theory of the case. And all of this may have been a setup. So Edgar himself may have set this whole thing up so that Soldier Boy could be retrieved by some Russian operatives. And then maybe to be the patient zero for some of these V serums to be mass produced. Meanwhile, back at Vought, we see that Starlight has confronted Homelander one more time with the threat of releasing that video if he doesn't stop pushing her buttons, to which he gives a really chilling response. Go ahead, release it. Let's light this candle, huh? I mean, sure, I'll lose everything, but then I'll have nothing to lose. First, I'll take out the nerve centers, the White House, the Pentagon, then any domestic defense capabilities, and then critical infrastructure, like cellular, internet, that kind of thing. And then, well, I think then, I'll just wipe New York off the fucking map for fun. I'll even throw in Des Moines and that little cousin fucker hick town that Maeve's from, because why not? See, Starlight, I'd prefer to be loved. I would. But if you take that away from me, well, being feared is a one okie doke by me. So, go ahead, partner. The idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, what would be the outcome of someone like that? In a way, he's constrained by his need for that public adulation. And there there again, we can make a correlation to what's happening with this Russian incursion into the Ukraine, 
where we can threaten more sanctions. We can threaten military action against them, but they have those nuclear weapons. So once again, if you take out all his other options, take out Putin's options completely, just corner him into having to escalate. Not that it's a one-to-one -one correlation, but I do want to call out the fact that this show is indeed trying to grapple with the real consequences of power. Meanwhile, back at Mallory's hideaway, Butcher leaves things very badly with Ryan, and we see Ryan's anger flare up. Butcher almost needs to expose the fact that he's taken this temporary V power, but he's able to control his power. Once again, showing that this young kid has had to grapple with this, this situation that Butcher's in right now, self-imposed, but he has no control over it. So maybe to speak that nature versus nurture, maybe Ryan can be saved from himself and from his terrible parentage from his dad, his biological dad. Fortuitously, when Butcher reunites with Frenchie, he finds out about Frenchie's situation and Butcher sees, no, 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 this isn't bad. This is an opportunity. We're going to Russia. And I have a feeling that maybe as soon as next episode, we will indeed be heading to Russia. And we end on Homelander making a surprise announcement, improvising a romance with Starlight. Starlight actually doesn't recoil. She embraces it and starts making out with Homelander on their second take. And she makes a fist behind her back, which we know from the beginning of the episode that this is her way of dealing with uncomfortable situations. And here she is once again, subjugating herself for a greater good, supposedly. All right, some more observations and nitpicks here at the end. Homelander, what an incredible asshole this guy is, making the deep eat his friend. This is a, simultaneously a very funny sequence and very sad. By the way, if you want to see someone actually eat an entire octopus, check out the movie Old Boy. Not the only reason to check out that movie, by the way, a truly exceptional film, but uh, also a grisly masterpiece of its own. Also very problematic in this sequence, each time we see that the deep is getting humiliated by these circumstances, his wife seems to be salivating. She's loving seeing him be humiliated. And I do worry not only about their relationship, but what extent she'll go to, to undermine him and humiliate him. Another uh, point, I guess a nitpick is uh, they did an absolutely terrible job covering up Nadia's history at the orphanage and <laughs> all those pictures of people's heads blown up. What is happening where they, you know, supposedly are so covert and have done such an incredible job of covering up everything and yet leave this huge paper trail for Nadia. Another observation is just how incredibly grotesque this show is. I kind of called it out before where we saw Gunpowder's head get sliced in half, but we also see just Nadia's powers where she's, you know, basically blowing up holes into her friend's uh, face when he finally tracks, him da tracks her down. <laughs> they would never allow this gore or sex content in a movie, definitely be an NC-17 or an unrated movie, but it's on Amazon Prime. <laughs> It's the world we live in. My critique of the show here at the end, I want to touch on a few criticisms I have of the show in general. And the first one is I think that I touched on this earlier, but when you have a situation where everybody in the cast, minus the superheroes and the boys themselves, they have no personality. They're there just to deliver a punchline. It makes it hard to invest in the humanity of the show, considering that all those people are completely disposable. They end up uh, putting us in the perspective of the superheroes themselves, where all these people are kind of beneath them. But maybe that's not unintentional. Maybe they want to force us to have an alignment with these superhumans. 
in an uncomfortable in an uncomfortable way. But for example, when you meet the termite's boyfriend, you know he's going to die. <laughs> he's only there to die. So, and, and that's pretty much across the board for the show. And the show, I think, has a Homelander problem. This is kind of like the Superman problem, as it's been called in the past. When you have somebody who is invulnerable, it's very hard to create any kind of character arc for that character. And I thought they were going to do, I was hoping they would do something a little more interesting with him this season. When we saw him confronted by his own fascism at the end of last season and putting a name to it, this name that makes him very uncomfortable, I was hoping this would be some kind of wake-up call. And I could imagine one version of this storyline where he can overcorrect. He goes after fascists or any kind of fascist-like ideology with such gusto that he ends up becoming a monster just a monster for a different cause, but a monster monster nonetheless. And I thought that could be pretty interesting to at least have this moment of reflection. That could have been ironic, right? If he becomes a social justice warrior that is killing fascists left and right, but equally monstrous. But instead, they basically have just created this character that is, for all intents and purposes, a petulant little boy. And we know that that's the case, right? He has arrested development, right? We see him fixating on lactation, on this missing mother figure that he has. So that's very on the nose. It's very obvious. But I was hoping that they could expand his character traits a little bit. And that's not to speak badly of this actor. I think he's doing a great job of being a villain. Looking at him from the outside, we see that there's this turmoil inside. I just don't feel like they've given him enough interesting characterization. They've made him such a one-dimensional villain that you really just want to see him killed off. I honestly thought they probably would have killed him off in season one, and then they would have more and more and more villains from season to season. And maybe that was the original plan. But instead, you know, he just keeps coming back for more. People love this character, obviously, and this actor playing him. You know, it would be pretty interesting in a way to have Butcher and Homelander on the same side and maybe more similar than they should be in a way. And maybe that is the direction this show is going in. So that remains to be seen. I am very curious to see how it all goes. have six more episodes of the show. I will probably be covering it week to week. And if you subscribe, you'll get notifications when these episodes become available. In the meantime, as I mentioned, we will be coming back with Better Call Saul recaps in July. But in the meantime, continuing to talk about Obi-Wan Kenobi, continuing to talk about The Boys, continuing to talk about the last two episodes, two episodes left now of Barry. Excellent so far this season. Very curious to see how that one lands. And of course, some reviews of upcoming movies, the Jurassic Park finale, question mark, Jurassic World 3, Dominion, the Black Phone, the new Thor movie, all things that will be covered here before we finally get back to the last six episodes of Better Call Saul. Very excited for that final batch of episodes. And then I'll make announcements later as to what we'll be covering beyond Better Call Saul. A lot of exciting films and series coming throughout the fall and winter. So stay tuned for all of that. Subscribe so you know when those episodes become available. Recommend us to your friends and family. If anyone may appreciate this conversation, please do share us with your friends. And of course, as always, drop me a line if you like the show or you disagree with my opinions. Needs some introduction at gmail.com and I'll be sure to reply. And just one last reminder that I am looking to network with other podcasters. So forward this on to your friends who might be podcasters or if you're a podcaster yourself. I look forward to hearing from you. Talk to you soon.